Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast coming to you today from the Fordham Law School in Manhattan. How is everyone doing tonight? Yeah? Right. That's what I am talking about. The Cynical Podcast is, of course, produced in proud partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our excellent newsletter, our app, or, of course, straight from the old tap at the website SupChina.com. We offer uncensored reporting and commentary on everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the latest on the Belt and Road Initiative to Beijing's ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and joining me on this Valentine's Day, this day of passion and romance, is my alarmingly hirsute date for the evening. Uh, he did not have that beard, I assure you, when I swiped right on his picture in, in Tinder. I swear to God. Anyway, his well, name... That's what my wife said, too. Right. <laughs> Jeremy Goldcorn, or that's what he says. I, I, I looked him up. He's actually known, better known as El Maiz Dorado, uh, which I believe was his name when he was a professional Mexican wrestler. Uh, anyway, the one and only Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Give it up. <laughs> Greet All I people. can say is thank you, Kaiser. All right. <laughs> You're not going to criticize the corniness of my interview. <laughs> Stop now. Uh, okay. I've got more. I got, I mean, I, I'm at the inexhaustible supply of ridiculous introductions for Jeremy. We are joined this evening by one of my favorite people who's writing on China, Jianying Zha. Uh, Zha Jianying writes with great sensitivity, both personal and, and political sensitivity, about contemporary China and makes it come alive in all its maddening complexity uh, for the readership of The New Yorker, where I some, like some of the best writing she's done has appeared. She's the author of some fantastically good books, including China Pop and The Tide Players, which I highly recommend. Jianying, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you. It's about time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Welcome, uh, <laughs> Jianying. And uh, welcome back, uh, because those of you who've listened to us uh, for a long time may recall we did a show uh, with Jianying in 2011 in capital M in Beijing, and it was called The Soul of Beijing. Yeah. Good show. Go, go back and listen to it. Uh, it actually... 
holds up sort of surprisingly well. I, I listened to it again recently. I, I'm pleased to report, though, that we have gotten much better at actually doing live recordings that sound decent. So I promise you, when you go back and listen to this show, it'll sound a lot better than that one did. But anyway, do, do go back and listen to that one. It's a really good show. So let's get into it. We promised you a show about dealing with troublemakers. Uh, <laughs> Jing, your December piece from The New Yorker talks about some of the very, uh, shall we say, interesting ways that the Chinese authorities deal with critics. One such critic is, of course, your own brother, Jia Jianguo. And one of the ways that the authorities have dealt with him is something called Bei Luyo, to be touristed or to be vacationed. Can you explain what that means, why it's done, and what is involved? Get your tones right. It's Bei Luyo. <laughs> <laughs> Bei Luyo. Well, it's one of the uh, Bei on a long, a growing list of the Bay phenomena. Basically, what it, it's a, a new kind of uh, invention on the Chinese internet to describe this uh, odd phenomenon of someone who is framed by usually a law enforcement, a police or official, to be seemingly doing something in order to uh, crack down on this person or round him up. For example, the Bay list, there's something called... Beihexie is the, the, the most common, widespread, to be harmonized. So Bay, right, Bay is, is, is a passive indicator, right? It's a it passive indicator. Like, yeah. To be the object of some verb. So right. to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah but sorry, I should no, no, explain. Bay in Chinese means to be. It's a passive verb. To, to put that in front of uh, a whole bunch of uh, you know, um, nouns or, or to describe whatever activity that follows this bay is actually... Uh, that's done to you. It's, something it's that's done, done to you. you. So now, to be touristed. And exactly. Another, there's another one like, uh, and to be taxivated. Oh, and right. How, what's that one in Chinese? Bei lo shui. Bei lo shui. <laughs> it was like our... our Friends, Ai Weiwei, <laughs> and oh, your friend, maybe Fan Bingbing. Oh, not my friend. I, I wish. <laughs> anyway, uh, all the, you know, there are lots of people, uh, some, uh, I can't say everyone, who, there are, in fact, a lot of, you know, tax evasions in China. It's quite rampant. But some characters who are caught in, like, high-profile cases like Fan Bingbing or Ai Weiwei are widely perceived as, you know, being caught not for tax evasion per se, but for other activities, usually, uh, for example, in the case of Ai Weiwei for other dissident or critical, uh, you know, that. speeches or that, <laughs> right. Yeah, but in fact, the official will arrest this person on tax evasion. So this is this is like you said you know it's one of a number of them of these pretty darkly humorous bay constructions so we have like you said bay bay uh, bay luyo of course and and uh yeah. bay lo shui also some very dark ones like bay zisha to bei be zisha. To, to be, be suicided right yeah. uh which means some, you know you you're sort of compelled to commit suicide uh or in cases where the suicide looks really quite suspicious like it wasn't actually a suicide but it's often applied. These, yeah. a whole yeah. bunch of them have emerged in this era of stability maintenance. That's right. What's yeah. the significance of, of this? Uh, why, why have there been this interesting parade of, of these bay constructions? Yeah, I think this is a very eerie kind of uh, uh, symptom of the police state moving, in fact, to, we, you might say, a little more sophisticated way of, uh, you know, uh, uh, silencing or get rid of uh, those troublemakers in different uh, 
spheres, right? Some of them are actually uh, party officials. Others are critics, like um, say the petitioners or uh, NGO activists or you know uh, uh, civil rights lawyers. But in the old era, say in the Maoist era or the early you know uh, reform era, some of them can be just completely rounded up or arrested in the name of, say, counter-revolutionary activities. So that's pretty straightforward. Just basically, you don't need an excuse that this person some, somehow outly, you know, broke the law by evading tax, or maybe, you know, he had depression and just deci- he decided to commit suicide. But in fact, it was something else. Something shady is happening here. But now, there's, the state seemed to find it necessary to have a kind of um, excuse that looks like something normal happened. He took when a vacation. Highway, yeah, he took a vacation and he had depression, so he took his own life. Or, you know, in some weird, like, in fact, this particular New Yorker piece, I had to quarrel with the editor to insist this, um, the bailist, to insist this to be jonged, to bei piao. Yeah, because uh, the the editors actually worried that the American readers would not be able to process this. What does it mean to be jonged? You know, jong me, meaning we the male. We need to explain that. Piaochang means to to, uh, to go out soliciting prostitutes, right? Yeah. So to bei piaochang, what does that mean? It means like you're passively fr- you're framed as if you're you know you're you're soliciting you're, you're get your right. yeah you're soliciting you're caught in the act. But in fact, the whole case might be framed. Like right. a, a prostitute may be enlisted to, you know, uh, seduce this guy who's being framed. There are actually some high-profile uh, cases of such. Xu um, Manzi is, uh, is one Manzi, of them. Yeah. This is one of the this, Charles uh, Xu, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, in his case, I don't. I mean, some of these are not. You can't. Yeah. Ha- I don't have, know how, how much bay was. <laughs> yeah, was in that particular case. case. Yeah, but there are there other. There's some cases. active verbiage going yeah. on there. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Bayumila. And let's um, uh, before uh, let's change tack a little bit before we actually discuss your brother's wonderful holiday uh, with his minders. Let's talk a little bit about him and his history of political activism. How did it all start for him? He, he's yeah. your older brother, right? He's my older brother. Mm-hmm. He's actually my half-brother from oh. my father's first marriage. So he's an uh, old Red Guard, a kind of a cultural revolution radical that went to the countryside in the late 60s and, and 70s. Spent actually 20 years there until he came back just on the eve of Tiananmen. So as a dissident or a troublemaker, in fact, he's a very latecomer. <laughs> uh, so... I, only in the 90s, he began to hook up with some of these other dissidents in Beijing. Uh, one of them is Xu Wenli, who's a veteran uh, who already was jailed for many years and was released and was thinking about forming an opposition party. And they, along with dozens of others in different parts of China, began to agitate for this democracy party, Zhongguo uh, Minzhudang. Right on the eve of actually Bill Clinton was visiting China. This gave them an unexpected short window of you know not being immediately cracked down. So they in fact actually went to register this party in different parts of China. But as soon as Clinton left, they were all rounded up. So you know most of the leaders were sentenced. The charges of subversion of state 
for up to like a decade. Like my, my brother was sentenced to nine years, and there were people who were sentenced to like 12, 13 years in jail. So the party basically was crushed within six months. But this was the beginning of my brother's career as a troublemaker. In fact, that was the title of my earlier New Yorker piece. But the editor you know, on publication, they give it a different title, Enemy of the State. Right. Well, the original was Troublemaker. Was, uh, that was my own <laughs> you know, title. Yeah. So how would you describe your brother's worldview then? Uh, what, is, what is it that he believes? What is it that he wants? And how did he come into it? And I mean, if you had to break it down into constituent parts, how much of it would you assess to be sort of honest commitment to democratic values and institutions? How much of it is just sort of anti-authoritarianism, maybe an outgrowth of that same kind of anti-authoritarian impulse that led him to become a red guard? How much of it is just sort of an irrepressible gadfly instinct because he is quite an irrepressible yes, gadfly. He just, yes. he won't stop, right? Mm-hmm. Which is really, really interesting. And, you know, just sort of his plain old stubbornness. I mean, I feel like, let's put him on the couch for a second and, and tell me what, what are the constituent parts of his psychology? Yeah. I, all of above. I mean, everything you just said earlier was part of the makeup of someone like my brother who's a complete diehard, you know, uh, rebel from very early on. I, I actually wrote in that early profile of him about how from childhood he was kind of, uh, was already revealing this unruliness against the authoritarian teachers, say, in very elite high school in Beijing. That was even before the Cultural Revolution started. So, but then he's someone who kind of embraced a cause. Co- he had to have a cause. Uh, he, he, so he, he basically became a radical Maoist in, in, in the sense that he answered Mao's call to go to the countryside, spread the revolution, be with the peasant, and Bob he Martin would follow that <laughs> until he hit a hard wall, right? Wow. Uh, so, but uh, of course, at the end of 20 years, he didn't change the peasants, the pe- peasants changed him. I mean, I literally remember visiting him in Inner Mongolia in a little backwater town uh, back then, and uh, seeing in front of my eyes this, 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 you know, um, high school bright student from an elite Beijing high school 20 years later, I couldn't tell him apart from any of those local, you know, peasants who would be squatting uh, there in the, by the train station selling eggs or potatoes. He was just one of them. Wow. Um, that was, you know, that phase. But then I think his next phase is he finally got totally disillusioned with all that after Tiananmen. And he realized, you know, this was the wrong utopian or revolution that he was engaged on. So he made a total turnaround and decided, basically, democracy is the new cause. And the root of all, you know, problems in China was called the Communist Party. I think, you know, that was, I mean, I'm maybe reducing his, his sense then, I think he's become quite, I really was uh, quite um, impressed by, he's a very good student of new things since he's been in jail for nine years, he's read a ton of books, and since his release, he's caught up with the new media, he's, you know, sort of, I think, become, this is maybe an oxymoron, but he's like a moderate among the radicals. Oh, um, so among that diehard small community of dissidents, I think he's emerged more and more as a, a firm but a moderate voice. 
How did you see him, you know, go into the sort of more moderate stance? What was it that he, were there any kind of the inflection points in that development? It happened, I think, over the, you know, um, the last maybe 10 years or so, um, when I think he realized it, this is a long haul. It's right. not going to, the revolution is not going to happen. Not going to be mass uprising just because, you know, people realize, you know, this is the wrong system. So we're going to just, you know, pay, everybody will be on the street and have a new revolution. That's not going to happen. Uh, though he would be one of those forever telling you, never say never. Right. Things are not predictable. So don't rule that out. But that's not what you operate from. So how about you and the rest of your family? I mean, as you watched your brother, you know, uh, develop or get in trouble or whatever Mm. you like to call his activities of the last 20 years, were you worried about him? Did you try and dissuade him from doing it? Were you worried it might affect you and your other families, uh, your other family members? Uh, I have to say, you know, as a little sister, I kind of you know, kind of admired him as mm. a hero from a childhood on. So I never, I mean, this is, even though we didn't quite grow up together because he went to the boarding school and then he went to Inner Mongolia and just sort of disappeared, right, for 20 years. But we have always had a sort of a bond. Maybe we had always things in common to talk to. So I sort of followed his, if you say, transformation or intellectual journey enough to know and I also know him as a as a, this character uh, I mean he's long told me this is my fate and he's I mean this is what he told me basically the first time I visited him in jail he said I knew I was gonna get here and I'm actually I never tried to dissuade him from what he does mm. I know he would follow it to I mean he basically to this day, he would say, you know, he's prepared to go back to jail anytime for any length of the time. And he's basically prepared to die in jail if it comes to that. So, and I, I, I would, I mean, I, this, actually, when I wrote about, in a sentimental way, a, a, a hero, he's a, actually a flawed character. He's a human, you know, he's a t- disastrous businessman, for example, <laughs> before Imagine he that. actually turned, you know, after he came back to, to, to the city, you know. Uh, he had a lot of things, and certain radical this part of him, we quarreled, and we didn't quite really, was not always on the same wavelengths. But I understood him enough to know that's the meaning of his life. This so you, is his there's cause. no point. In I, even there's trying. no point. No, I, I don't think gonna... I ever tried to say no. This is not what you should be doing. I, basically, my role is to just try to understand him, give him whatever form of support I could. But there's plenty of other members in our uh, Jack family. There's a large clan. There, his own mother, other sister, their relatives, cousins. There are a lot of people who try to talk him out of it. Uh, basically pleading on the cause of, you know, both to think for the rest of the family, for others, or that this is a hopeless, you know, this is a hopeless cause. You're just on a suicidal, you know, mission. So there's plenty of people who are doing that, right? But, but okay, so another sort of related issue. Do you ever worry that your writing, particularly your writing about him, will get him into more trouble in China? Uh, I thought about um, that, um, from very early on, I, you know, the two main pieces I wrote about him, one was when he was still in jail. And I thought there's no place worse that 
you know, anything could get him. This, what, as a writer, I, the only thing I can do, I can't do what he, he does, you know, and I, I don't intend to what, do what he, he does, but I can write about a character like him. And I feel that is almost my mission, if I have one, to tell stories like that, that would give me a, a kind of a meaning, maybe in certain space. Because at that point, even though he was spending, you know, nine years in jail, no one knew who, who he was. I mean, that party was little known because he was crushed so utterly, so uh, swiftly. And none of the Chinese media in, in China reported about the, any of this. And because he's a latecomer, he's not like someone like Wei Jingsheng, who had earlier had an uh, episode when China was, you know, still relatively open. People knew about him. So he was in total obscure, you know, person doing this thing uh, in this tiny cell, right? So I thought the only thing I could do is to tell his story. And but then this more recently, um, this this about the police state with him again as you know the main character in it. Again, I thought about whether this is going to get him in more trouble, and I didn't think so. But still, I made. You know, the one point I, I did insist was uh, not to have the famous New Yorker fact checkers to call him beforehand because I know all his phones and everything was tapped and monitored. And so I didn't tell him I was writing this. So he didn't see it even after it came out. And only after it was translated into Chinese and began to circulate on WeChat that he read it in one of the uh, groups. So he just said, like, ha, you know, I saw this. So I said, oh, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm just playing a little innocent joke on you, you know. I knew you would find out, but uh, I wanted 8, to know. 8,000-word joke. <laughs> right. So uh, I think this is maybe the first time he actually is a little worried about me, um, whether this would get give me any trouble oh, of uh, no. traveling back, in, uh, you know, back and forth. So he was actually released in what, 07, is that right? Uh, 08. Oh, 08, yeah. right. Uh, and just in time to sign Charter 08. Right? Uh, he actually uh, was a signatory on Charter 08, which is interesting. Because what I think is, 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 is fascinating is that, so he emerged from jail in 2008, and, and we, you know, we just mentioned WeChat, mm-hmm. and now he's active in these WeChat circles. He emerged into a whole new world of, of, of social media, mm-hmm. of a, a blooming public sphere, beginning with you know the, the the BBSs, these you know online internet forums, and then graduating into Weibo. And mm-hmm. he's been very active on all of these things. He has some room, apparently, to express his dissident political ideas. Mm-hmm. It's very clearly circumscribed, mm-hmm. but he does have some room. Can you talk talk about? the room that he has had and what he's done with that room. He has apparently been completely unapologetic. He's just continued to push to the yeah. limits, right? Yeah. So it's interesting because he does seem to delineate what the limits are by what he can, yeah. he can do, right? Right, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, in fact, you know, this new media, actually we're talking about the new media, but uh, before that there was still the traditional media, right? The uh, newspapers from the... Um, uh, after recovering from the initial kind of complete, you know, shock of Tiananmen, had in fact through the early 90s when the market reform was going ahead, was deliberately, you know, a lot of the intellectual journalists' energies were channeled into a relatively liberal 
uh, media in many forms. In these, you, you think about these uh, southern well, group. southern uh, newspaper group, the the weekend editions that loosen up. Um, you know that that Lin was Dian and stuff like that. yeah, Lindian. There's a whole range of them. And um, so I, I think in that phase, there's a lot of uh, liberal uh, journalists and reporters who, you know, seize that moment and try to, you know, uh, write in a more relatively. I mean, censorship was always around. Uh, but, you know, um, in that space, I think a lot of liberal uh, people were having a platform to spread their message and to push for a kind of um, a political reform or more, just more, more, uh, uh, you know, freedom mm -hmm. in general. Or there's a cultural, you know, more, kind of a more cultural spaces that are not official. That yeah. I mean, you're part of that. I mean, you're in Beijing. There's, you know, rock. You know, there were rock groups, jazz groups. There were all these, and there's these salon types. My brother, though, did not come to all that until. I would say, like, uh, he had to recover from, you know, not being around for nine years in jail, right? So after, I think, uh, maybe 2010, it was maybe about the time he began to write these blog pieces. Uh, and he's, of course, is strictly in this kind of political commentary form. So, and given the he's really uncompromisingly, you know, critical uh, stance and views that, of course, could only be circulated in this space where, you know, there are pockets of more, you know, uh, on the internet that can air such pieces and views. You're not talking about main spaces like right. portals, like in, uh, you know, I mean, in- It's in the uh, comments to pieces and it's- in, Yeah, and then uh, it gets reposted, it gets some, uh, onto appear in some overseas Chinese websites and then it gets circulated back. So it's this whole kind of combination of, you know, channels and free it's and semi-free. It's a liminal space though, yeah. 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 It's really just yeah. the leakiness of the surveillance and uh, policing systems, think that is allowing the space to exist it's not out of design well they've even cracked down on that though right i mean yeah in recent years it's gotten much harder for him to be much harder yeah, yeah. increasingly harder even though you know from the beginning someone like him was banned from publishing anything in official you know uh, media right but they know what people like him are doing and publishing and they basically allowed that space uh, to, you know, to carry on. Well, um, are you talking about the golden liberal era of Hu Jintao and when that happened? <laughs> <laughs> that we so fondly I mean, remember. We're, yeah, we're we all, laugh, we, it's we true. All, <laughs> it's true. I mean, but now, of course, we're all on the kind of uh, receiving end of some, I think, uh, irony of harboring that kind of... Uh, uh, Nostalgia uh, no, for, for those days. Yeah, I was Well, because we're all on the pointy end, now we're on the pointy end of, right, yeah. So uh, <laughs> uh, if I may ask, Jianguo is apparently determined to stay in China and Jianguo. Um, yeah. He doesn't want to come to the United States and join his daughters or you. And he basically thinks that uh, China is where he should be. Can you explain his thinking about this? Is it that like some dissidents say, if you exile, go into exile, you become irrelevant and you know, you are unable to do anything positive about China anyway? Or what is his, his thinking? 
Yeah, that is a big fear, you know. I mean, to this day, I think a lot of Chinese exiles, I still feel the loss of this sort of mother language, home space, where they could be doing, in my brother's language, will be, you know, fighting the battle on the front, you know, <laughs> front line. You have to be where, you know, the, 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 the battle is, right? If you're, you're cut off from that, you know, then you have no voice, you have no space, and they're not the kind of, especially people of, his generation, they don't feel they can actually cross over to a different language and culture and has still have a meaningful kind of existence. So China is what they hang on to. And I think some of the earlier exiles who were forced out still, you know, where I, I, I know some of them in New York, for yeah, example, sure. you know, you feel this forever kind of nostalgia or bitterness about being an exile. And we see this in exiles everywhere. You know, if you, you, you read Herson's, you know, that, that, that uh, big book on uh, uh, my past, my thoughts, I think that, that all that, er, you know, early Russian exiles, even though they were culturally and linguistically actually much better positioned in Europe, they're all like multilingual and all that. And once they're, they left Russia, you know, they feel like they're cut off. Right. From and, and I think part of that is, is my brother's, you know, feeling that uh, he doesn't want to leave. Even if he stays in jail and in some, some way, some people who now see China as a giant jail, right. you know, if you're, you're, you know, you're doing that kind of thing, basically you have very limited space to operate, but still they want to be there. Well, the other thing about going into exile is that you see what happens to them. They all fall to squabbling with one another. They factionalism. Yeah, there's this yeah. terrible factionalism. I mean, is yeah. he aware of that? And and how do yes. you diagnose yeah. that? Why does that happen? Why do you suppose it is that these these the people... most vicious I- fighting is amongst Chinese dissidents right. in New York? I mean, it's it, it's <laughs> terrible. The, the things yeah. they say about each other. Right. Yeah. Why why do you suppose that happens? Well, I mean, it's, I think it's easy for me to kind of lapse into the, the, the usual kind of uh, lament about this is part of the byproduct of, you know, a totalitarian kind of culture, totalitarian uh, politics. In fact, you know, you're the mirror image of your enemies. Exactly. So in, in fact, you know, as soon as you, it doesn't mean that, you, you know, you're fighting your enemy, you become something else. You may be still the same animal. You know, so you, you turn around and started fighting within yourselves and you see spies around you and you begin to see in the same way, in the same black and white white way, like the, the your enemy, which is the Communist Party. Uh, that The same uh, you know, authoritarian habits of exactly. mind. Yeah, exactly. And the yeah. same hierarchy, the same suspicion, right. <laughs> uh, all that purge that happened um, in, in China. I mean, in fact, this is not, also this is not particularly Chinese either. I've um, I've had so. that that conversation with a lot of people, and and one of the the more persuasive suggestions that I've heard is that the kind of people who take up political dissidents activism in China, it takes a certain personality type. They're going to be exceptionally brave for one thing. They're also going to be they're going to be egotistical. They're going to be extreme individualists. They're going to be megalomaniacal in some cases. They're and going to they be monolithical. They're going to be sexist in many ways. <laughs> and recently why, why, I've why discovered sexist? among some of my longtime, I don't know, I used to think of them as liberals. Now I think maybe they need a different hat or label, you know, uh, who are... Uh, they're sexy. Some of them, some of them are now in the like more recent phenomenon. Say some of them have really a lot of trouble with Me Too. 
the movement, which it had a, a kind of a, a, a short play in, in China. I mean, it's not ending, it's, but it, it started there too. And some of my, you know, I thought liberal Chinese friends had trouble with that. And there's lots of people who have trouble with the Islamic culture. But, you know, some of them, I mean, this is, I think, you know, underneath these views, I mean, what's underneath the, the sort of Chinese Let's see, this is another, maybe oxymoron, <laughs> Chinese liberal Trump fans. Is well, there such a right. thing? Liberal God, Trump right. fans. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. discovered yeah. since the two, two, you know, since this last U.S. election, a lot of my Chinese uh, liberal friends, because in Chinese, these labels are all right. needs for the their mirror. explanation. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's the mirror yeah. image, like the, the right in China. Is, yeah, is, because right. they're, they're defined as, you know, to the party, the Communist Party started as the ultra-left. Right. So anybody who's against the party is basically actually on the right. If you think about the 1957 anti-rightist campaign, right, these are the, the newer generation of that rightists in China. But in, in, the, in the sort of political, usual political uh, spectrum of Chi- talking about Chinese politics, they're all lumped together as ziyopai, which yeah. means liberals, right. right? You see the same uh, phenomenon in Eastern Europe, a lot of a lot of Czech or Polish uh, "quote unquote" mm-hmm. liberals are actually quite uh, enamored with these kind of Trumpian authoritarian characters. It's it's very unfortunate. Let us yeah. turn now to the vacation that your brother was forced to take. Um, Although several, well, yeah, the several, <laughs> the A vacations. Sorry, the vacations, the series of guided tours <laughs> that your brother was forced forced to take. Can you you know set the scene for us? Mm. Well, you know, uh, for those you haven't read the piece, I basically, uh, you know, tracked uh, from I think two o twelve is where he put in particular. I don't know whether there are other Beiliu before th- that year, but he's definitely started around two o twelve and increased with frequency. I think back then maybe it's once or twice a year on these so-called sensitive days, which means like, like anniversary of Tiananmen. The calendar is filled with sensitive days. Right? <laughs> it's like the birthday, right? Every right. day is on birthday now. But anyway, so th- back then, there were just these certain like anniversaries or party congress. Uh, but now, you know, because China has emerged, you know, into this global kind of uh, powerhouse, so all kinds of global forums that's held in Beijing or in Qingdao or in Shanghai also become sensitive days. And so on such occasions, the police would usually take certain, you know, a selective numbers of troublemakers out of the site of that city, wherever that forum or party congress is happening. Take them out of the city on these beautiful locations, say a beach resort or the northwestern, if it's the summer, maybe to the north northeast uh, for usually a week, or in the case of my brother, sometimes it could be two weeks. Um, All expenses paid. All expenses paid, and usually with his uh, handlers, uh, you know, doing everything, taking everything, booking the tickets, hotels, and taking him everywhere on site, including snapshots of him on these, uh, you know, scenic spots. Uh, So, you know, I think the rationale, of course, is to maintain 
security and a perfect city, so that no troublemakers will raise hell by talking to foreign media, complaining about Chinese politics, or some of these,、uh, you know, particularly loud,、uh, you know, petitioners might go on the street or get themselves in front of Tiananmen and and all of a sudden show up with a placard or whatever. So you take them out. Right and treat them really nicely, but make sure their cell phones is in your possession, or they can't.、Uh, they have no access to to anything. So no internet.、Media. No internet. No internet. Yeah.、Uh, but、uh, another side、I、of this. I could use one of those holidays. <laughs> Jeremy, I think you qualify as a troublemaker, and you could、yeah. easily were you to go back to Beijing. I think they would happily take you on such a holiday. I also think whoever come up with this idea must be a brilliant, you、it's、know,、genius. entrepreneur. It's genius. Yeah, it's totally business. I almost thought, you know, maybe Harvard Business School could write a case story about this. This is innovation with the Public Security Bureau. Yeah, maintenance. Really weirdly Kafkaesque. I mean. Is that the right?、Yeah. I mean, it's it is. It's, it's、uh, just. Is that, I'm not sure. Not、Alan、exactly. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> midway between Kafka and Huxley. Yeah, Huxley. Right,、know. right. There's also it's, that, that it's, sort of it's like, the you know Orwellian brave new world. Yeah, play, I don't in, into, know. Into right into submission. Yeah, and it's a long food chain because you know the you know it's in the interests of these police. To have these troublemakers, right? So that that would be their reason to have a free vacation. So you would see this phenomenon in Beijing, but also in different provincial cities. Sometimes with excuse, even though the the the, the conference or the whatever the forum is actually happening elsewhere, but the local police could use that to get some of their local characters. You know, they would want to escort them. Right, their local I mean, troublemakers you, you on to, vacation. Yeah, yeah. You, you get a vacation too. So, yeah, there's there's a real incentive to, to do this.、Uh, wasn't it the case that that they would like carry his luggage for him? They were incredibly solicitous, right? Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. They, you know, they would like make sure to see to all his comforts. He was eating lavishly and they were eating.、Drinking. Well, I don't know how lavish because I'm not sure they would. Their budget would allow five star hotels. Say, okay, okay, still, okay. but still, but they're still they're very well treated, and he's definitely. Treated almost instead of being their hostage, he's like their patron.、Uh, and you, the 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 maybe the particularly dark comedy part of this is, you know, they often get lumped together. They're they're mistaken by other real tourists on these tours because sometimes the police book. Uh, their group, say my brother and his three agents, right? They're all in plain clothes, so nobody, of course, could tell this is a bailey or they, they look like real tourists. So sometimes on these tours, they get on the same bus, visiting the same sites with the real tourists, and the real tourists. Sometimes you know how gossipy and nosy yeah, some yeah, Chinese are, and you're bored、some. on these buses. So <laughs> who are these two people? They're all male and they're always hung together. They're inseparable, and it's very easy to guess. You know, my brother usually being the older one, and everybody's serving him. What do they even think they are? Even on the meal tables, they like. Their boss or they, they would guess. Oh, is this is your boss? You know, is he your boss or, or what's your relationship? You know, like your 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 uncles and and you know, is this your your family vacation? And and they would show him such deference. It seems such a respect, right? At the meal table, they would,、uh, you know, get a ten fan, you know, like scoop out more rice and and soup and this and that. So he's being treated as if he's the boss. So this is really 
I don't know if it's Kafka. Maybe I, I think you need to write a new. We, we, we this needs to be Jai-esque, perhaps. You yeah. have to write a new novel. Right. Um, so when he was first, uh, well, not first, when he was arrested in 2017, uh, and that uh, you know, in your piece, it's a pretty funny tableau uh, with him sitting in a massage parlor. Uh, getting a herbal facial um, <laughs> when the cops bust down the door, more or less, to come and yeah. get him. Um, it, that arrest was actually for something that he'd written that in a Chinese context is pretty incendiary, I would say. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. he stopped short of calling for a military coup, but, it, you know, that was the, yeah. the, the, the feeling of the piece. Right. What was your reaction when you saw what he'd written? Um. I, I was actually traveling in Hubei when I saw that he wrote a, this new blog. I didn't pay attention to it because I was traveling. But then when I got to Beijing, I first heard from a professor, this um, guy, Beida professor, uh, Zhang Qianfan. He just sent me, he said, I heard your brother is taken away. And I didn't even get super alarmed because he's such a veteran with police. It's just jia chang bian fan, you know, it's like every day police follow him. And this was right a few days before Tiananmen anniversary. So I thought, oh, nothing out unusual. Then I realized this is different because he was taken away and he was put in an unknown detention site to, for interrogation for that one WeChat piece, which he was accused of, I mean, he wasn't, he was really written like that, you know, like a, like a, a, a roadmap in for case a of a, coup, yeah, right. in case of a mass, you know, an unexpected incident turns into, leads into a military coup. Uh, what he actually meant was that there's always a chance when an unexpected mass incidents happens on a sensitive time, given the, the pent-up discontent, the military might not follow the order, might disobey the order to open fire. So this could be different from 1989. So that was basically his scenario. But the mention of a military coup and leading to, I mean, there's a whole th- scenario after that of changing government, changing regime and all that, uh, just spooked somehow the police and the censors uh, about yeah. this. So, and he, of course, his piece gets reposted to a lot of groups. So they basically had to stop this. And they were threatening him and trying to make him pledge uh, not to write anything like this. But the they future. were they were tr- yeah. bending over backward to give him like, oh, I, I think you might have meant this, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he would say, no, I really meant this. Oh, but... Maybe we misinterpreted it as this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. giving him all these outs. Yeah. Right? Always the agent in the course of this law interrogation first tried to say, look, you, you didn't really repost it. You didn't send it to a lot of groups, right? So meaning, you know, this oh, is yes, maybe did. not a lot of you. <laughs> he said, no, absolutely. Yes. I said, so maybe you copied this from someone else. Maybe you are not the author. He said, no, I absolutely 100% sure. So they were after this, they were trying and they were very polite to him. They call him in this very, you know, reverential term. Jalao means, you know, yeah. the Jia, the elder. elder yeah, the elder Jia. And they said, so they finally said, God, we were we were already chided by our, our leader to be too soft on you. And now you're calling for a military coup. You know, you're making, you're putting us in such an impossible situation. (laughs) But all the time, they really, they still didn't lose their, so in fact, the way to read that situation is not just they're acting this way through sheer humanity, because I think they also wanted this whole case to be seen as not so out of hand, maybe not stirring up wider circles. So their 
not going to be blamed. The police themselves are not going to be heavily blamed. They're part blamed. of the crime, in other yeah, words. Exactly. So, so they want to minimize the crime. Yeah, exactly. To control the damage that right. way. Right. Yeah. So you talk about uh, your own crowd of generally wealthy, pretty sophisticated urban friends in Beijing, your circle of people. These are, um, let me quote from your story. You, you wrote, the people I'm friends with in Beijing, you call them up, uh, but you write of them, yet many Chinese liberals doubt that the Western system is feasible in their country. They fret about the burden of history, about the prospect of chaos and mob rule. In their own lives, they avoid radicals and former political prisoners for fear that such associations might jeopardize their personal freedom. They shun the sort of political action that could put their comfortable lifestyle at risk. I've often urged people uh, that they, they ought to try to understand these types of people, people I would describe as being the, maybe the center of gravity, really, among educated elites in China. I suspect that there's this imputation here in the U.S. of a kind of moral cowardice to these people with the attitudes that you describe. Uh, maybe I've just spent too much time in the company of just such people, but I feel like I can really quite empathize with them. Yeah, I think we all spend maybe a lot of time with yeah. that people. I, I would say that, yeah, most of I, this is a much, much, much bigger block uh, of, you know, under this cap, what I describe as moderate liberals in China. They're basically what usually in the, maybe in the West um, media, they're called the new middle class. Uh, or And so in urban, uh, they're, a lot of them are, are in cities. A lot of them are educated. A lot of them have traveled um, internationally, you know, internationally. Yeah. And a lot of them have themselves have studied abroad or they have children now studied abroad. And they've done well uh, in the last you know, 30 years or so of reform. But in terms of ideas, in terms of their sympathies, intellectual sympathies, they are actually with the democracy, and I mean, they, they feel this is the way to go. However, one, they, uh, maybe they know too much about Chinese history, and they feel the Chinese history casts such a long shadow. They're, in fact, they're part of that shadow, too, you know, that there's a reluctant to believe that uh, this system could change fundamentally. It could follow the Western model in the Chinese context. You know, they, they would think that a better way to go is gradual reform, incremental change, rather than the kind of wholesale change or radical change people like my brother are advocating. What does your brother think and of people like that? I think he feel he, I, we've talked many times about you know, they being a, a tiny minority versus this larger, you know, uh, educated class who, you know, don't see it that way. And are maybe, are they cowards? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I can't, you can't just say, no, they're heroic. No, they're not. I, I don't think so. I mean, my, myself included. I, I picked a different route. Let's just face it. I'm not willing to be a hero in the sense of my brother, of going to jail for this kind of belief. But do I share the same belief and this is the way China should go? Yes, absolutely. But I think my brother has always expressed an understanding about most people would see 
see the way China changed in that light and not in his light. Right. So it's not, he would be the last person to say those are cowards and they should be, you know, morally, you know, uh, judged. I, I as, feel like as here as in, in the U.S., when we think of a Chinese intellectual, when we look at the New York Times and we see uh, another op ed written by a Chinese intellectual, who is it? It's always Yuhua. It's always Murong Xuetun. It's always people whose views uh, are very comfortable for Westerners. Right. But yeah, mm. but, but you know, that are quite, but we don't. Spend much time trying to understand yeah. this larger group, and and we we really kind of dismiss them as uh, yeah. you know people who are sort of morally cowardly in some way, and and I think that's really unfortunate. I think that is a big difference. So, I mean, the people who do get these people and and in in empathize with the choices that they make made. Yeah. Just, Based on their own understanding of Chinese history, right? Yeah, and I also also you there's a, this crowd is not all of one piece. I mean, there are yeah. different gradations of of engagement or choices. Some would not be willing to do what people like my brother. That's the ultimate opposition to organize the opposition, right? By forming a party, by expli- doing by pen direct assault on the system, on the party state. But there are all these other, you might call public intellectuals or bloggers who are very critical, but write in a, you might say, in a more moderate or artful language or engage in different issues, maybe not frontal organizational kind of politics, but they might be um, talking about how to reform the education, how to educate the the rural areas, the push for NGO activities, broaden the, using the art, foster artistic freedom as a way to go forward. All of them are making contributions, in fact, to the same cause in different ways. Of course, can paying- I interrupt and say yeah. this group of people? Then, I mean, if we can call them liberal, uh, moderate liberals, moderate, moderate liberals, liberals yeah. you know, who are you know actually trying to do something. Um, I mean, there's a chill in China right now yes. among this yeah. group of people. Um, what's your sense of, of, of how they're reacting? And if, if we had to take a timeline, because, I mean, I think we're all pretty clear that Xi Jinping is a big part of why mm-hmm. there, there, yeah. there is so much repression yeah. of free speech and you know, right. yeah. any kind of dissident activities in China. But it started a little earlier. Can you track a timeline? At what point did you notice perhaps some of your more liberal friends perhaps blogging less or yeah. not at all or you know not being so forthright in their public yeah. statements? Because that's definitely a thing, right? right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think even as um, Xi Jinping took over the party leadership, you know, that's 2012, there is still a, a good chunk of this moderate liberals uh, who still had hope that maybe, you know, what has gradually been, you know, there are incremental changes and there are even moments where you feel, oh, free speech was getting like a lot of play. You know, uh, right. there were people who were saying, you know, these liberal intellectuals and journalists are taking over the media. You know, I mean, that's an exaggeration, but you, you uh, get 2003, the 2003, 2004, and 2011. Yeah, yeah I would about say like 2012 with, like you know, the, the constitutionalism movement. I mean, yeah, yeah 2012. Yeah, and that, that's, that's the year when Xi Jinping took over and spoke this language of Yifa zhi guo, you know, like yeah. we'll, we'll do rule of law and put power into the cage. Mm. All that give, you know, this really, uh, you know, optimistic 
feeling for I would say at least a year, the first year. Uh, but you know, I mean, we 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 talked earlier about there are people who. Uh, saw the writing on the wall. So right. Yeah, well, like, one of those we were talking about. Uh, Jeremy Barmay, for right. example. Who, I mean, he, yeah. he, in I think 2010, yeah. when we first kind of knew that Xi Jinping was going to, I mean, it was already the talk of Beijing and Xi Jinping yeah. was the guy. Well, we yeah. knew in 07, but... 07, I mean, some even yeah. earlier. I mean, I worked with his niece in like uh, 2000. <laughs> I knew her. Who's niece? Oh, Xi Jinping's niece. Oh, um, yeah. I, I worked with her in 2002. <laughs> and... Um, uh, you know, at that time, there was already this incredible aura around. Everybody knew right, he, he right. was He's going places. He's the anointed places. one. Yeah. Right. But um, we, I, I think a lot of people. But yeah, Jeremy Barmy was one of those who, way, way early on, basically said, "This guy is wants to remake China. He wants to surpass Mao." You know. Yeah, uh, I think. I mean, I you know, I I met Jeremy last year, uh, talking about being myself. Uh, putting myself in the doghouse because he was asking me, why are you not writing this, you know, what I, I said, I, I feel I need to, you know, uh, ch- you know, some period of rethinking, uh, be- being one of the hopefuls for so long. Right. Um, you know, I, I would put myself in one of the hopeful for graduate reform camp, uh, cautiously hoping things could go on. I can uh, imagine what nasty, um, nastily <laughs> cynical thing Jeremy said in response Jeremy, to that. <laughs> I, I know, and Jeremy is the, the, the bad boy of China studies, right? right forever. But so he, he basically was, it was saying, you know, that this, this was inevitable in a way from Tiananmen on maybe, you know, maybe even that earlier sense, from when sense, the, yeah. uh, but there's a, you know, there's, I, I would say, yes, all of us need, in in retrospect, people like Jeremy is right. Turns out to be right. Yeah, this is this is bad news For when the wrong Xi Jinping reasons, came but in. Yeah, right. yeah. but I, I would say, too, uh, aside from some soul probing, I would not regret one, uh, two, one, one point is that I don't quite buy that everything is inevitable. Right. Uh, you, as long as it's a communist party, things were just hopelessly uh, Aaron Hauser's. So, you know, there's someone named Gorbachev that happened under a communist party, too. We can split hairs about the difference between Soviet Union and China, but basically it's the same. It's two brothers in the same, you know, party state system. So there, there's always, you know, you can't say, even though I'm not saying that the, uh, Xi Jinping obviously was the creature of the system. He did not create all this, okay? The, the system created him. Uh, so, but there's always unpredictability of, you know, an accident that could be, say, Bo Xilai or Li Keqiang became the, the number two. Things the would not one. be totally different mm-hmm. if it n- number one. It would not be totally, it would still be the Communist Party. It but would if still Bo Lai was top dog, it would it'd be so it much more fun. It would be a different. <laughs> <laughs> more fun, yeah. Well, it's a little more urban in, in the than the sense of interesting country. times yeah, fun. Right. Yeah. No, but, no, it would have been really more fun fun. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think, you know, people engaged in, in China fighting for whatever through education or art or, you know, pushing the envelope of, you know, um, free expression, that hope was important for them to have that hope to to do to feel these work are meaningful and i'm not ready to say it's all down in the tubes so you uh, you haven't given up hope yet uh, not Completely. that kind of hope because right. i mean not it's not like oh everything we did in the last 20 years was for naught because i think people if you look at chinese society 
you know, right now it it does. I mean, I, let me tell you, it's pretty gloomy, uh, especially yeah, among yeah. the intellectuals or the educated middle, even the, among the moderate liberals. We're talking about. Yeah, I think the the end of term limits really was one of those inflection points where people yes, really freaked out. I, mean, I was actually in Beijing when that, when that happened, was, right? And it changed know, everything, right? It, every people, even the, some of the people who saw. I have to say, myself included, before that, we've been talking for at least two years that this is going to happen. However, when the other shoe actually dropped, all the jaw fell. I mean, everybody was flabbergasted for a moment yeah. that this actually happened and pulled through without uh, opposition. I hate it when you right. right. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I was one of those, and uh, partly because of Jeremy Barmey's influence, who predicted, I think, in 2012 right. that right, he was right. going to try and hang on to powerful life. Yeah, And I felt Still, it actually happened. And you were still kind of shocked. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the actual, even just the term limit mm. thing was basically predicted for at least two years. Yeah. I would say people say, oh, this is going to happen. And it happened. And still, everybody realizes this is a watershed event. I was in Beijing. I realized, you know, I remember that, and it's both the Chinese intellectual and the whole West. If you, I remember the the Economist uh, cover article right after that is, the cover line was how the West uh, how the West got China wrong, right. and this was the I think the first editorial after the term limit yeah. was stripped, and you could see this is a major wake up call. Well, I had some problems with that piece anyway. So I, I, one, well, we have some time left. But I, I want to talk to you about one thing that uh, I, I, it's it's really important to me. I've, I'm somebody who's long believed that the way to understand that one of the primary engines of Chinese history is the relationship between intellectuals and the, the state, mm. whether it's the imperial state or the present party state. Understanding the the relationship between intellectuals and the state is crucial to understanding how politics moves, how history moves in China. Uh, I was in Beijing during the spring of 1989 in Tiananmen when we were there. And I saw a lot of the events unfold from within the square. And I was always struck by one thing. I, you know, I, I watched things happen. I, I, th- I talked to a lot of people. I thought I sort of understood what was going on. But you know, with my sort of kitchen-level Chinese back then, I realized that there was this whole level of discourse that was happening that I was not privy to. There was this whole sort of semiotics, this very highly historically conditioned, very symbolic language in the actions, in, in, in some of the, the way that, that, that uh, remonstrance was done. And I started to sort of, I realized, it was, it's sort of like watching Peking opera and not knowing that that general on stage with all the flags on his back is supposed to be leading an army or that the guy with that tassel uh, or the, the, the stick with the tassels on was riding a horse and not understanding the symbolism. And I realized there was this whole layer underneath it and I, I, that I didn't get. And so I spent many years afterward trying to understand that. And I, I think I came to a, a much better understanding, but I, I still think it's a perfect doll. I feel like your writings on China really help to help people to understand the way that the state relates to critical intellectuals, to the kind of mainstream intellectuals that we're talking about. Uh, first of all, I guess, do you do you agree that, that that's, that's an important uh, thing? Uh, do, do, you, do you believe that there's something unique to China uh, about the role that intellectuals play in the political life of the country? And do you think that that's something that isn't well understood outside of China? Um, yeah, well, in the China uh, 
study circles or observers, everybody know that the the tradition of shi, which is yeah. the traditional word for intellectual, right? That through the the Confucius tradition and all this um, the the state exams, you know. Um, basically, the intellectuals play a very uh, particular role, an important role of advising the emperor right. and, then, and now the leaders, right, about the direction of the country, or they also are seen as a spokespeople, uh, spokesperson uh, uh, for the common, the, the, the common people's cause. So they champion the common people. So they're given a special kind of status or platform to either govern or change the society. So that is why right now this whole ruthless crackdown on the intellectuals by stripping, removing basically a lot of these platforms for their voices are so uh, disturbing disturbing and, you know, cast such a, a chilling Effect because they lost that platform, and so if you go to Beijing now, I mean, I I feel I was in there for half a year last year through all that term limit and and I saw all these you know private dinners where people like you know kvetching or stunned and drink you know all these drink parties and there are lots <laughs> of people who just feel like despair, a, a sense of feeling of despair and defection. Then, and they're, they're defecting from. They were a loyal opposition, right? They, they saw themselves as a loyal opposition or loyal advisor or some a part of the reformed force that's also connected with the the system because there are people, such people in the government too. We're not talking about that's just right, right. professors yeah. and, and and journalists. And that platform is suddenly pulled from under. They and had these channels of yeah. of consultation, and suddenly. They're, they're yeah. not. They're just plugging their ears, not not listening to the. And then not only that, it's replaced by this, you know, stodgy, you know, mass, you know, kind of sounding Maoist like, uh, ideological indoctrination, uh, you know, yeah. indoctrinations, and all the political, you know, this old molded. People thought that that was already buried in the dustpan of history, even in China. Now they're just like. Dust it off and came back to the classroom. And put it on a mobile phone so you can um, then monitor. <laughs> yeah, in the in the classrooms yeah. and all this. So the, the, I think the intellectuals are now the liberals part of them. I mean, because some of them are just now become the spokesperson for the new party state. Or there are lots of that types too. Or, you know, thinking they're riding with this uh, rising global power that's called uh, the new era of China, right? The Xin the, Shidai, right? Uh, and but then the others are just doing this familiar. This is not the first time that happened to this class of people. Retreat to their study or to their banquet rooms, to their drinking and, and you know, doing scholarship. And uh, I'm not saying everybody give up, but everybody senses this is a winter and you don't know how long it's going to last. So, of course, being intellectual, some of them are doing what their best at, which is they think, oh, maybe this is the time to write my big book, <laughs> right? But maybe for the future. Like, so none of them have a stomach for the fight. None of them are going to join Zazianguo on the streets. Uh, no. Even <laughs> my brother is not quite on the street anymore. Right, right, this, right, right. I mean, there, there are new activists uh, by younger people, but not of the same brand. For example, there are these Marxist 
you know, students from Beida,、mm. they're joining the labor, you know, the labor、uh, forces in, in Shenzhen.、Right. They're also immediately get shut. So anything organized resistance or opposition have very limited space or lifespan. So and everybody see that. So right now, I think you know, there's just this shocked, you know, effect of people being silenced, you know, and. Lost their language and you know retreating to their private. So、state. so go back to the days of Choti,、uh, Choti Wenxue, no literature for for the drawer.、Oh, for the drawer. So you you write it and you put it in your drawer and you you never、I、show it to anyone. Yeah. Or the other expression,、yeah. these、uh, like we mentioned, this these Trump supporters.、Mm. I think、Ugh. the despair drive them to this. Just just this write just Choti Wenxue is a better choice. <laughs> The,、oh、the irony is 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 so loud. I was hoping、right? you were going to steer this、uh, so we could end on some kind of a happy note, a, a slightly happy note. I think this is the wrong podcast for happy note. No, <laughs> well, that's a, the sign of despair is because they feel only through an external force.、Right. Maybe that could pressure、mm-hmm. things to over. So they would lodge even their hope on a strongman or a liberal, you know, figure from abroad. At least, you know. It's they they will call、uh, it takes a bigger hooligan to fight、uh, a, a smaller hooligan. Before U.S. become too weakened, you may as well have、uh, you know a, a, a real liumang, right? This is liumang in chief. Well, yeah, he yeah, is. Liu, yeah. I, I will、chief. I will give him that credit. He is a big fucking liumang. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry,、so. I didn't mean to swear.、Uh, I did mean to swear. Okay, now, but. We we actually we're, we're running long. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I mean, we. I guess, sorry, everyone. Sorry we could、me. actually stay here all evening. Ah,、uh, we could. I mean, lots more. I'm casting about for a way to end more happy. But let's. Why don't we do this instead and just move on to recommendations? And yeah, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. My oh, God, you still haven't got a recommendation. Went back. Yeah, you'll、right. think of one.、Um, yeah. Because we'll let Jeremy go first.、Um, okay. So before we we get to recommendations, I do want to remind everybody that Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina, and、uh, if you like what we're doing, the best thing that you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina Access, which gets you all sorts of goodies like the full daily newsletter, discounts to our events. Those of you who are Access members came here free tonight and saved twenty bucks.、Uh, it gets you all sorts of all sorts of goodies. You can harangue our editorial staff on our Slack channel. That is really fun. Like Lucas here. Give him all sorts of. Anyway,、uh, I want to make sure also that you all subscribe to uh, the uh, latest member of the Seneca Network, which is a terrific new podcast called Middle Earth. The Middle Earth podcast, which is about the culture industry in China. The first episode is about how to become a Wang Hong, how to become an internet famous. I'm famous, a <laughs>、uh, famous person in China.、Uh, it's、uh, it's it's check it out. It's a lot of fun. You'll love it. Uh, on the recommendations, Jeremy, to buy Jane、uh, some time. Why don't you go talk first a little bit? Okay. That's、um, okay. Blah blah blah. She's got one. Okay. <laughs> okay.、Um, I'd like to recommend a, a science, what we used to call science fiction, but I believe I'm now supposed to call speculative fiction.、Uh, a book by Kim Stanley Robinson Ooh, called、uh, Red Moon. And even if you don't like science fiction, if if you're interested in China, the the basically I'll give you the setup for it is.、Um, It's、uh, I can't remember how many years from now. Xi Jinping made a huge success of his nearly lifetime tenure. China is big and powerful. China spent a lot more on、uh, the moon than the United States, so it is the biggest.、Uh, it has the the biggest presence on the moon out of any other countries, and the drama takes place between the Earth and the moon, and in America and in China. In China, princelings are plotting a revolution,、um, and it's it's a lot of fun. And you know, I'm always hesitant to read books with China stuff written by non-China specialists because of how frequently they get the most 
you know, the dumbest things wrong. But he, he's d- done a pretty good job of actually giving a sense of contemporary China um, and of, uh, uh, you know, suggesting um, a way of thinking about the future. I think that's interesting for wow. China watchers. That sounds great. I, I'm going to, I mean, that's my next book then. I mean, as soon as I read It's an easy read as well. A lot easier podcast, than most of the books yeah. you, you, you know, it's... Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Okay, you're up, Jane. What do you have? Okay, I'm actually torn between a book and a podcast. You can do both. Can do both. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay, so let's go with the book first. I would recommend uh, Wang Li Xiong. Uh, yeah. He's uh, Wozer is uh, well, husband, uh, right? Huh? Yeah. Well, the husband of Wozer, right? Yes, right, that's right, right. right. Yeah, Wang Li Xiong, who is the uh, author of many books, and including the the one on Tibet that I loved uh, tw- twenty years ago. But I'm, what I'm recommending is his latest uh, novel. That's actually a political science fiction. You could cast in that category because it's it's a novel or a novella, maybe uh, a short novel about um, casting the future of a China where the Big Brother has reigned all and it actually is the world of both you know uh the big br- the police state and the high-tech police state um where you know um uh through like putting a something like a chip on everybody's shoe everybody's uh every moment everywhere is uh sur- you know, under surveillance. Oh, so he just um, wrote about Xinjiang again. <laughs> you <laughs> he wrote about Tibet, now he's about Xinjiang. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This book, I, I think this came out, this novel maybe came out two years ago. Uh, and But then, you know, something goes wrong in this massively high-tech, you know, state uh, where in the, the, the reason that the, the novel is called Da Dian, Great Ceremony, is um, this is when it happened during one of these highly, you know, choreographed, important state ceremony period, assassination took place using the most, you know, unexpected cutting edge technology by one of these nerdy, you know, designers, uh, uh, you know, geeks, uh, who because of some kind of um, mishap for his own interests, Wanted to got involved in this assassination of the head of the state. Oh my gosh! And actually, so kind I'm of guessing got this away wasn't published in China. Then <laughs> it was published in Taiwan. Oh, I think. of course. And uh, Hong Kong, oh maybe Hong Kong, but I read it online oh, and okay. highly. Re- it's very well uh, written, written. Oh, and, and a good read. Oh, great! What's it called? There's Dadian. a love story in it. Uh, yeah, and there's uh, uh yes, there's a Dadian. There's uh, for 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 geeks. There's a lot of you know technology, stuff, yeah. and then there's a sex machine. So it could be almost oh, part of I'm it is sold. like a porn. A sex machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a high tech sex machine. Oh yeah. yeah so huge, there's yeah. a you know like Jeremy's these, a high tech uh, sex machine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's one recommendation. I want that in my next introduction. <laughs> Okay. The other is a podcast. I thought this is maybe the time to to review some of that uh, Roman history, ah, which is a yeah. time of uh, passion and intrigue and strongman, right? And this is a, a, a podcast series uh, by, I hope I don't get his name wrong, Mike Duncan, I think. Mm-hmm, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's very easily found on YouTube. Um, it's like 30... Nine episodes, uh, two hour each. Oh my so God. it's very good to listen. Lots of stories, 
Lots of good storytelling. And does it cover um, the entire history of Rome or just the, uh, the entire? The fall of... No, no, the, the history of Rome. Oh, wow. Called. So, oh, wow. you know. Terrific. Yeah. So, I've always loved these, these deep dive history podcasts. And yeah, they're lots of fun. I've just got a too long of a podcast listening list these days. And I have to produce seven of them every week. So it's kind of a pain <laughs> or more. But great so, recommendations. Two excellent recommendations. Uh, mine is going to be totally frivolous compared to that. And it's for a band that when you guys are in Beijing, you should definitely make an effort to see. They're called the Spice Cabinet. And they're fronted by a Chinese-American guy who shares a hometown with me. He's from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And he, uh, his name is Terrence Xie. Uh, he graduated in jazz trombone performance from Oberlin, which is a very well-known uh, of course, conservatory. So he's a fantastically gifted mu- musician, tremendously good arranger. The music they play is this, you know, horn-filled, joyous kind of funk pop with lots of jazz in it. These are they're consummate musicians. They're all just phenomenally good musicians. I mean, the level of musicianship among the the Beijing bands, except for you know the the shitty ones that, that pretend to be musicians and call themselves experimental or whatever, uh, the level of musicianship's uh, is just phenomenal and these guys uh, blew me away I, I listened to a bunch of their stuff so make sure to go see them music that will make you move there's just no question you can't sit still during stuff like this it's absolutely joyous so with that I want to thank you once again it's a, so it's such a pleasure to have you back and let's have you back again soon not wait so long this next time. yeah not in another era yeah. <laughs> the last time was it was a different yeah, era different that's era, true yeah. A very, okay. very different Thank era. you. Well, yeah, well, I, I don't think any of us will be alive by the time this era ends, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, on that note, I, that's really a high note. That, is that a depressing way to end the podcast? Well, well people ask me what, about the, you know, the, the Mike Pence, you know, speech, which is Ugh, the, the, yeah. the, the, the all-out call, right, to right. a Cold War. And I, my response would be, let's make some frozen daiquiris and toast to the new Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> at, at, you know, my response go is down. Fun. That guy without echo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for all. Oh, thank you, thanks, Jeremy. A pleasure as always, and thank you all for coming out on Valentine's Day to hang out with us. Yeah, thank you. Stick around and ask some questions, but I'm going to do the outro first. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Special thanks this week to the good people at Fordham Law who made this terrific space available to us. Drop us an email at Cynica at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts that we've got, the Taishin Cynical Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Ta for Ta, and the brand new Middle Earth Podcast. More great shows coming soon, believe it or not. I really I got more shows for you guys in store. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Yeah!